Every work team has moments of conflict and dysfunction. Sometimes productive conflict is a necessary part of wrestling through big ideas to get to the best possible outcome. But sometimes our teams become mired in conflict that is entirely avoidable because it's based in vastly different communication styles or different motivations and misunderstandings. Enter the Enneagram. The Enneagram offers not only self-awareness, but also curiosity and deeper understanding of others. I teach the Enneagram and consult with teams to improve their communication styles, conflict effectiveness, and self-leadership, all of which foster highly engaged and high-performing teams. During a recent team event, I heard over and over, this just makes so much sense when they looked around the room and saw who was fitting within each type. And now I know why this person asked so many questions or this depersonalizes some of the conflict we've been having because I can tell we're just coming from different perspectives. So now that we know where we are, we can see how we can get aligned. So if you're looking for ongoing support or simply considering an engaging introspective module for your team's offsite or event, let's talk. Reach out to the Nine Types team at hello at ninetypes.co or schedule a one-on-one consultation with me on my website, ninetypes.co. And now on to the show. Hello and welcome back to Enneagram in Real Life, a podcast that will help you go beyond Enneagram theory into practical understanding so that you can apply the Enneagram in your day-to-day life. I'm your host, Steph Baron Hall, creator of Nine Types Co. on Instagram, author of the Enneagram in Love, accredited Enneagram professional, and any curious human just like you. Be sure to check out the show notes for more ways to apply the Enneagram in your daily life. Thanks so much for listening and now on to the show. Welcome back to another episode of Enneagram IRL. I'm so glad to be back with you today with a new episode all about the perspective of a specific Enneagram type. Now that we've been through all nine types in previous episodes, we're getting to hear from different people who have different subtypes, which you always hear that in my little commercial about the subtypes, but it's a really useful aspect of the Enneagram and it's a way of looking at it a little bit more specifically and um, through a slightly different lens. And it's just super helpful in terms of actually applying the Enneagram in your daily life and using it for growth. So sometimes when we hear from the same Enneagram type and they seem really different, a lot of the time it's actually because there are different subtypes. Um, I mean, of course, each individual is very different just in general. That's how we are as humans. But I think it's just really interesting to observe the different ways that we are specifically different based on our subtype. In today's episode, I had a great conversation with an Enneagram 9. Her name is also Stephanie. So Stephanie Woodward is a whole life and leadership coach, facilitator, and author of The Big Scale Back, Success and Balance by Your Own Design, which just released in the past few weeks. She is the founder of Agency to Change, a boutique firm specializing in custom coaching programs to help individuals and teams redefine their relationship with work. And you can also find her at stephaniewoodward.com, 
on Instagram at agency to change or on LinkedIn. And I will include everything in the show notes in terms of those links. Um, but I also want to mention, cause I talk about this in the episode that I have done coaching with Steph as well. <laughs> you might notice that I've done coaching with various of my guests. Steph has done some mentor coaching as well for people who are on the track to completing their ICF certification. So I worked with her in that capacity. In today's episode, we primarily talk about Steph's brand new book, which is called The Big Scale Back, all about how she went from being burned out and overworking into really redefining her life in a way that feels good and sustainable for her. And as a special gift to all of us here, because I'm really excited about this special gift too, she has offered these specific downloads that she has that accompany the book um, that help you walk through different aspects of some of the principles that she discusses in the book. So one of them is called Unconscious to Conscious Productivity. Then there's one called Identify Your Core Limiting Beliefs. And then finally, one about the Enneagram. So if those interest you, you can find them at the link in the show notes, which is stephaniewoodward.com slash Enneagram dash in dash real dash life. And you'll find those worksheets and they are meant to accompany her book, which is on sale now. So I've included the link to purchase the big scale back in the show notes too. And I really hope you'll check it out. And I hope you enjoy this episode. Well, Stephanie, welcome to the podcast. I'm so excited you're here. And I'm so excited to chat with you about your book and the Enneagram, all those sorts of things. Oh, I'm so excited to be here, Steph. I can't wait for this conversation. I've been excited about it all week. Yeah, I'm so glad. I love that you bring this like groundedness to the way that you coach and the way that you speak about things. And so when I saw that you were coming out with your book, I was like, I have to have you on the podcast. It's going to be so great. Um, and so I'm excited to hear more about your book and everything that you're doing now. Um, but before we get into all of that... Um, tell me about yourself. Tell me a little bit about your story. I'm sure that that is going to walk us right into your book as well. <laughs> well, whenever I hear this question, the first thing that comes to mind for me is always um, people oriented or people person that I feel like that could be at the essence of my story from childhood. So I was always very much a people person. Uh, very much into relationships. And we'll talk uh, Enneagram type nine. I am a one-to-one -one nine. So for me, that is, I don't think it would be surprising for anyone who knows the Enneagram to say those, those relationships were so important, led to me studying psychology in undergrad because I just loved the dynamics of people and how uh, personalities were formed. That was such a passion area of mine. Uh, then did a master's degree in communications. So you bring those two things together. And I was all about how do people relate to one another? How do people talk to one another? And that it's no surprise to me that now I find myself in leadership development and leadership coaching, doing work around the Enneagram personality profiling, um, all kind of work-life balance and those topics. And that um, is a bit of a spoiler for the book. It's all about work-life balance. And that has become a really big passion topic for me right now. And something that I have lived through my journey of kind of chronic workaholism and now really helping helped myself and working with my clients to look at whole life fulfillment and what does it look like to be fulfilled and to design a life that you feel fulfilled across every area of your life, professional and personal. So that's a little bit about me. Okay. I love it. And I think you've given us a few different things that I'm excited to dig into a little bit more. But one thing that you mentioned is that chronic workaholism 
aspect. And I think a lot of the time we don't associate that with type nine. Uh However, and I'm not sure if this is where it's related for you, but I've definitely seen a lot of nines, the defense mechanism of narcotization come out in workaholism. And so it's just another way of like kind of tuning out what's actually happening for you. Um, And so I could see how that could happen for a nine. Um, But I'm curious for you, how do those two things play together, being a type nine and the workaholism aspect? Yeah, I think you just said something really fascinating to me to say that the way I would zone out to myself was through hyper productivity and do, 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 produce, produce, produce. When I was first introduced to the Enneagram, I started, I got my report, I fell in love with it, and I started reading everything I could about it. And when I read the different types, I really thought maybe they've mistyped me because I see a lot of three in myself, to be honest with you. And everybody I meet says, oh, you must be a three. You must be a three. And so I think that's really interesting that outwardly, my outward behavior might present uh, very stereotypically three. But what's going on inside is exactly what you just talked about. I am zoning out from all everything else, ignoring my own needs, ignoring um, and not really knowing what they are. I, I, I wasn't even deliberately or consciously ignoring them. It was more that they just didn't exist, which is classic self-forgetting nine. And showing up to please others, to um, take in perspectives of others, and produce, produce, produce. So I, I would say those two are those two things are very, very connected. Wow. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. So how did you come across the Enneagram then? Mm-hmm. And like get into understanding your type? So it was with a group of leadership consultants. We would always form kind of a, um, a mastermind group. And we were constantly seeking out different experts, different specialties, and we would do these professional development days. And somebody said, hey, I know someone who comes in and talks about the Enneagram. So in they came. I'd never heard of this before. And this was many years ago. And said, hey, do you want to do this report? Absolutely. So I did it. And when I saw, and I'm someone, again, from my background, psychology, personality profiling, always loved that. But there was something different. When I got that Enneagram report and I read it, I honestly thought someone had been videotaping me secretly, um, had access, had maybe been rummaging through the garbage and found some old journals or something because it felt, it felt very different from any other report I'd had. And it just captured some of those blind spots that I had not seen in myself until I was confronted with it on the page. So that's once I saw that, because I'd had exposure to so many other reports and personality profiles, I was like, this is, I need to learn everything about it. So in classic me style, I read every book and then got certified through through two different Enneagram programs and integrated it into my coaching practice. And so here I am today, a big, um, a big fan and a big believer in the Enneagram method. Yeah. So when people say from the outside, oh, you seem like a three, you must be a three. What do you know about yourself that other people aren't seeing? Mm. This is a great question. What, what are other people's, what am I, what are other people not seeing in me? Um, I think the complete um, lack of knowing myself back in the day. Now that I've done a lot of this work, now that I've done a lot of personal development, I know myself at such a deeper level. And a lot of that is, is thanks to the Enneagram and also work I had done prior to that. But people probably thought, oh, Stephanie wants to achieve that goal. Stephanie has chosen 
that goal and is now uh, really successfully chasing after it. She's striving, climbing, chasing in service of something that is very well thought through and something she chose and quite the opposite. I was like, well, if this important person has put this in front of me, I'm not going to check in with myself. Like this is the thing I'm supposed to do. So I'm just going to do it. And I found myself again, climbing, producing, achieving someone else's dream, someone else's goals. So to me, that was the real difference. It wasn't me saying that's what I want. And that's until now, but I'm talking 10, 15 years ago, I wasn't able to say that's what I want. And I'm going to, and I'm going to go after it. The goals were all other people's. And so I was again, fully asleep to myself, but nobody would have known that they would have looked at me and thought, Mm -hmm. that's a very reasonable goal. Other people would have wanted what I was achieving. So it seemed reasonable to them. And it seemed like, yeah, she's got a realistic goal ahead of her. Right. And also when you are that asleep to yourself, you don't even know it. Like you don't even know that you're chasing somebody else's goal. You're like, I'm just, everyone's just floating through life like this, right? That's right. Until you suddenly get a rude awakening. And for me, and that's a big part of what the book was all about. It took me really having some big uh, adrenal crashes in my life. So some big health issues to suddenly say, and I laugh because I'm like, oh, I actually did kind of fall asleep. I ended up like semi-conscious, really unwell at one point in my life uh, because I had completely gone to sleep to those needs and was working at a very unsustainable pace. And it was that it took that for me to really say, you know what? I don't think this is working for me. Like, I think I maybe, <laughs> I think I might be out of alignment and may need to check in with myself to see what it is I really want. But that's what it took for me to get a big wake up call many, many, many years ago. So, okay, I'm, I'm, I really want to dig more into that because, you know, you, you moved through that. How did you move through that? Like you had the wake up call, you had the moment and then it's like, now what, like, what did that look like? Yeah. Well, I will tell you, first of all, that's chapters like seven through nine of working through it. So (laughs) I won't give it all away. Um, because folks will have fun reading that in the book. But what I will say is it wasn't easy. And it's part of why I wrote the book the way I did. It's part, um, it's part framework for how to move through and get to know yourself and know what you need and what you want and how to define success for yourself. Um, but it also shows memoir. So I'm bringing in, here's the journey. And I did that not because I think, hey, look at what I did, you do it too, or you'll make the same decisions as me. I did that because I think one of the things that's always bothered me with some professional and personal development books, they're these very nice laid out frameworks, and then you go to put it into practice, and suddenly it is not as neat and orderly. It's a very human experience. And I will say this, it was not just a nice little linear path. Oh, I I got sick. I realized I needed to change things. And snap, boom, wake up tomorrow morning, here I am a different person. Um, I had to do a lot of soul searching. I had to wade through a lot of muck, unpack a lot of beliefs that I had about myself, about my relationship with work, to set up an entirely new path. And I'll tell you this, it freaked some people out. It upset some people. It ruffled a heck of a lot of feathers. um, And it raised a lot of questions. So it wasn't easy. So I think that's my bottom line, to, to really unpack your personality patterns to really unpack your beliefs is pretty scary and it's really disruptive. But uh, by the end, I was like, this is really worth it. And you come out the other side feeling like I've landed in a place of fulfillment. That feels so resonant to me. And I think to so many people, and I, it also feels a little familiar, like not just in the sense of like, I've 
been there, but also in the sense of, I've heard this story before, right? Like, and I am really excited to read your book, especially because you have that framework written throughout, but also because it's every story is individual. So I'm not saying like, let's not read it. It's we've heard the story before. But what I am saying is, what the hell? Like, wh- why are we doing this to ourselves? Like, what what is it about our like standards and our, our the way that we approach things? That's like, we're constantly going into these places of like, having to numb ourselves from our actual lives. And like, what do you think is happening there? Because I know that you've been a coach for a long time. And so you have seen so many people work through this and walk through this. Yeah. And usually um, I find our beliefs, so our limiting beliefs and how, so that can be anything. That's a massive umbrella of a topic to throw out there. And when you said, hey, I've heard this story before, that's what I found funny. It's made me both happy and a little bit sad because everybody reads the back of the book and says, oh my God, I feel that that's my, that's my story. Like that, I've done that. So we're all, like you said, we're all experiencing this. Um, and I think for those of us that do identify as being ambitious or who identify as being um, achievement oriented, or I mean, there's such an upside to that right? To say, I want to make a contribution. I want to make a difference. I think where things go sideways is we can take that desire to make a difference, that desire to be successful, that desire to be ambitious. And then suddenly there's all these beliefs that have been put on top of us from society, from our families, from our cultures, um, from how we've experienced the world that says, this is the right path to take, or this is the path that's going to get rewarded. And I don't think really any of us are encouraged to really sit back and reflect and say, what is it that I am here to do? I, we all have we all have gifts and talents. We all have skills. We, I truly believe we're all here to do something personally and professionally that feels meaningful to us. But there's so many outside forces um, that keep us unconscious to that, that we end up on autopilot chasing after, again, um, dreams that have been set upon us. Maybe you had parents that said, this is what I want you to do or really encouraged you to do that. Or this is a good career and this is a bad career. This is what, you know, family life looks like. This is what, you know, it doesn't look like. And we take all of that in as kids. And and when are we ever encouraged to unpack those? Unless you really decide to go into a uh, a therapy, a a deep therapy uh, set of sessions or something like that, it's very rare for us to sit back and actually think consciously about what it is we really want and to make the changes that go against all of those external voices. That's where the muckiness comes in. Like, yeah, I know what I want. And I know that's going against what others and society are telling me is perhaps the right thing, but I'm going to walk that path anyway. Yeah. Because that thing that you mentioned of like, it ruffled a lot of feathers or like people were not prepared. I've heard that, especially from a lot of nines. I think that happens no matter who you are, when you decide to like, be like, actually, no, I'm going to go this other direction. But especially from nines, because the people around you are used to hearing, oh, whatever, I'm easy. This is fine. Like, things are great. Like, uh, whatever will be, will be. Like, that entire thought process is feels so easy and comfortable. And then to actually say, actually, I am going to do the healthiest thing I could possibly do right now, which is to work in service of my own desires and my own wants and needs and dreams. And then you ruffle feathers. Like, so that's a whole limiting belief in and of itself. Like it's okay to ruffle feathers. Oh my gosh. I'm laughing. I know our listeners can't hear my laugh, but I'm laughing and smiling on the other (laughs) side here because 
that's exactly it. And I obviously for a one to one nine fusion is a big issue. And I, as a kid, I was so fused with my parents and I could fuse with just a best friend or a teacher or a subject matter at school. I could fuse with anything. And suddenly that became the thing that I was fused with and completely obliterated any chance of me having my own thought about what it was that I wanted. Um, and that ruffling feathers, I mean, that's still the difference for me now is that I'm conscious of it. So I feel myself resisting it. I do not want to ruffle these feathers, but because I'm conscious of it, I can say, and yet I must ruffle these feathers to get to where I know uh, will make me more fulfilled. So it's it hasn't changed the grip or the fear. I still feel it every time I go about ruffling feathers or upsetting people. I still don't like it, uh, but I now have a bigger, it's in service of something bigger now that I'm very clear on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I also just think about hearing the the concept of your book, The Big Scale Back. What what does that mean for you? Because I have like a thought that's very much connected with with the ruffling feathers aspect. But um, I'm curious a little bit about where that title came from. Yeah, it's so funny. So as I mentioned, part of the story is me just using my own personal journey as an example of the concepts. And so I lived I lived this story many, many years ago. And so it felt very dramatic at the time to be making a shift in the amount of hours I was working. Like I was completely fused with my bosses in workplace. So I was working 80 to 100 hours a week, depending on what was going on, um, massively burning out. So for me, it felt very dramatic to scale back from that. So scale back is really looking, I, I used it for myself and I encourage others to say, it's really looking at what isn't working for me right now. And what, what belief do I need to scale back from? Uh, what is it that I, what is my own personal scale back for me? It happened to be hyper productivity and just unsustainable hours. Uh, that was, that was the thing that I really needed to scale back from, but it's this idea of what, what is, um, what isn't serving you in your life and how can you, how can you lessen that a little bit? Yeah. Yeah. And I, I also, what it makes me think of is <laughs> what did you start to see? Like, what did you start to experience and feel that was like, you're like, Oh wow, that's uncomfortable. I was trying to ignore that by working 80 hours a week. All of it. So I remember being assigned once to uh, sit in the quiet and just let my thoughts come to me. And uh, I was told, hey, do that for an hour. And five minutes was painful. Because at that point, when you have been climbing and striving, and not in service of your own goals, and not in service of what you want, when you actually stop doing all of that, that was taking up literally all of your time, all of my time was taken up doing that. I found myself single, I hadn't had a good relationship. And I couldn't even remember how long when I when I was suddenly sitting in this quiet spot. I was in a role that other people coveted and wanted. And I was so unbearably unfulfilled and unhappy in that role that it really felt um, like a big rock bottom. And listening to those voices in the quiet of what is it that I want, I didn't know. And that was typical nine. So it was very scary to sit there and say that all I knew was, I don't want this. I don't want this anymore. I want almost the opposite of everything um, I'm feeling here. So that's where I was at. From that point, like, how do you expand that? Because I think the the reason I'm thinking about this question is I'm just remembering like the first times 
that I meditated. Hmm. And I was like, what is what is this? So so like, you know, then I started using the Headspace app or the Calm app or whatever. Um and it's so different now. Um, but it's been years. And like, how do you keep at something like that when it feels so incredibly painful? With this, I really while I didn't know what I did want, there was something in me that felt some form of relief in just acknowledging the fact that it wasn't working. So there, I can only describe it. If there was some glimmer of hope, some glimmer of this, something about this feels, but even though this is really uncomfortable, there is some relief in acknowledging this. And I really trust, I had a good support group in terms of a wonderful therapist. I had a wonderful coach at the time and I had really, really great friends. So having that support network where I think I could see the concern on everybody else's faces um, and I could tell that they wanted me to see, to, to experience a change. And so again, that nine of like, oh, other people think that this, you know, some other important others in my life think this is an important thing. There were times when I did want to please my therapist. There were times when I did want to please some of those other people in my life um, that that actually probably served me in that moment to keep me on that path. But I did feel that glimmer of there's something here. There was something in me that knew I just need to stick with this. And also going back to the way things the way things were was very unbearable. And I often find that with my clients. If you are not feeling a cost to the way, it's like with any habit, if there isn't a cost associated with what you're doing, there is not an impetus to change the habit. It's hard. It is so hard to change our habits and change our patterns that unless you're feeling a cost to the status quo, you're not going to change. So I, I was feeling such a such an unbearable feeling with that status quo that that was a huge impetus for change and stick with itness. Yeah. And I'm curious if the way that you work now, you do a lot of executive coaching yeah. um, and leadership coaching. And how often do you see this mm-hmm. in these leaders? Like, I, I'm curious because I, I don't necessarily do executive coaching per se, but I go into a lot of organizations and I work with the management team. Like I'll sit down and, and they could be actually like executives, you know, and, and I'm doing Enneagram work with them. Um, not necessarily one-on-one, but more so in the group. And I think I think back to when I worked at that type of an organization and everyone was like, oh, well, when you're at that level, you've made it. Nobody has imposter syndrome, et cetera. Like that's, we imagine that a title will just get rid of the imposter syndrome, but it doesn't. Uh-huh. And so I go into those environments sometimes and I'm like, wow, you don't know what you're doing either. Like nobody <laughs> knows, right? Like nobody knows. Um, we all like walk around like, acting like we know. And I'm curious how much you see your story repeated in your clients. And like, I guess like my question is why? (laughs) why? Uh, All the time is the short answer. I see this all the time. It used to come to me whispered in sessions just to be like, there's some other part of my life that isn't working. Can I talk to you about that? So people would come in because it's leadership coaching, it's executive coaching. They'd come in with all kinds of topics related to managing their teams. Um, you know, how do we make the culture here better? So I would get all of those typical themes coming in. But what would really show up in the conversation was, yeah, I think I've now got this under control, but my my marriage is in a shambles, or I never see my kids anymore, or 
why am I, I'm about to be offered this promotion and I don't, I don't even want to take it, but I can't possibly say no. Who says no to a promotion? But I'm just concerned about the impact and the havoc it's going to wreak on my life. So that it shows up in so many different ways. Um, and again, why does it happen? A lot of people, um, what will people think if I say no? People will jokingly, when they see the title of the book, The Big Scale Back, they'll say, Steph, I trust you. I'm going to buy, I, I want to buy your book for my whole team, but you're not going to turn them into slackers, right? You're not, you're not, nobody's going to get lazy, are they? And I said, no, you know me, this isn't about, and so that there's that stigma, there's that judgment, this idea of we glamorize workaholism, we glamorize hours, we glamorize time at a desk. And that's a real hook for anybody who identifies as ambitious, high achieving, which are all, which none of those things are negative. It's how those get hooked into unhealthy patterns in the workplace. But when when you are then rewarded for that and you get addicted to that reward and you're hooked into an identity that says, I am a successful, ambitious person, then those hooks are really working their magic on you and they're going to keep you in that loop. Yeah. And you also mentioned that the world needs leaders that are deeply self-aware and people-minded. That is essential. You know, it is true. And I think as you were just saying, like it matters because of teams, it matters because of marriages, it matters because we're not machines. So you can't compartmentalize like those things that are hooked into us, like the ambition and all those sorts of things. We can't actually compartmentalize that as we would like to think we can. <laughs> um, and it impacts everything. And it's uh, everything you said. Yes, yes, yes. Check, check, check. And to any skeptics out there, I would also say it's very practical. So the amount of hours productive hours that are lost in a workday because of unnecessary conflicts, unnecessary reactivity in the workplace, um, personality patterns running amok because people are unconscious of their blind spots. That takes up so much time that if we are able to minimize that, if people can be a bit more self-aware, lessen their reactivity, they're not reacting on autopilot, they're aware of their patterns, they're aware of their dynamics with other people, you're no longer wasting time in conflict or miscommunications or anything else and you can spend that time actually getting the work done that needs to get done, and that shortens your workday. You're actually getting hours back when you start to minimize conflict, minimize miscommunication. So it's very practical, in addition to also remembering that we're not robots. It's also the nice thing to do as well and the human thing to do. Yeah, absolutely. I I, I think that's really challenging. I think that there's a lot that's changing with regard to that, but even still sometimes you know, getting like sending out a proposal and hearing back, like, what's the ROI on this? How do you answer that question? <laughs> uh, for specific for coaching and for leadership development, mm -hmm. I will always, always find out what problem or issue we're addressing. And it's always going to be tied back to that because usually, um, depending on what the topic is, if there's either we're working in silos or so-and-so and so-and-so -and -so don't get along very well. Um, so really you're coming in to address these two people. Everyone else is fine, but there's this dynamic that's going on. So usually understanding the issue or the problem for the work that I do, it's, it's looking at what's the, what's the pattern that's going on underneath that? What's the relationship dynamic? And then speaking to the ROI from that perspective. Like if you're able to manage this again, you're going to get way more productivity. I don't always love to use that word productivity because it does speak into that hustle culture mentality, but that's what resonates with a lot of people who are looking for those ROI stats. So as soon as you get a question like that, 
Um, they are looking to hear that th- their people are going to be more efficient. Their people are going to be more productive. I, the, and the way I deliver that work, I'm always going to promise more efficiency and, and better outcomes. But the way I approach that work is also going to make the workplace better for all of the employees and hopefully uh, reduce some of the stress and tension that's in the in that workplace. Yeah, it's almost like productivity is like the Trojan horse, but like what you're actually trying to deliver is like a better workplace and better team culture for the organization overall. And this is what's funny, because we've put them into a binary to it's either results or relationships. It's either profits or people. And they're not, it's just replace it with an and take the or out and put it It's relationships and results. You are going to get better results. If there are better relationship dynamics in your workplace, you are going to get better profits. If your people are treated well, all of the research speaks to this. And so it's really all of us unhooking from this pattern of productivity is glamorous and overwork is glamorous and working 60, 80 hour weeks is glamorous. If we can unhook as a society from that, um, it's an and it's not an or you get both. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and like, I'm, I mean, I'm sure you have referenced things like this before, but um, I remember reading a study about how um, people reported such a, a significant decrease in intent to turn over if they're, they felt seen and understood by their manager. And I think that I feel like this is a thing that's becoming very, much more commonplace, I'd say. Still in certain sectors, it's probably not, but it is becoming more commonplace, which I'm grateful for as long as we're doing the actual work, right? Like as long as we're we're not just doing lip service to we're a family or whatever else. Yes. And I think that was something before I had language to say I'm a type nine and this is a gift of mine. I think throughout my entire leadership career that seen, heard and respected, I naturally cared what everybody on my team thought I was, I was genuinely interested. And so people would say, gee, Steph, how are you getting such good leadership results? Like this environment is pretty toxic. And yet your team always seems to be pretty happy and you don't have a lot of turnover. And I, at the time I was like, well, I just, I lead the way I lead. And as I've researched it and now, you know, 15, 20 years later, I, I can kind of see the secret behind that. I would, um, congratulate people on doing a good job in a meeting for literally 15 seconds when we came out. I'd say, hey, you asked a really great question in there. Thanks for really preparing well for that meeting. Do you know how their faces would light up with something as simple as that? And it takes five seconds and we just don't do it. So many, we're rushing between meetings. Again, this hyper productivity, when you're rushing from one meeting to the next, you miss out on those opportunities to just catch someone doing something good and to actually say Mm -hmm. the very human response. Thank you. You did a great job in there. Um, oh, can I, can we talk about that? I want a little more detail on what you were talking about and connect and understand what's going on for that person. We've lost a lot of that. Um, and I, I'd like to see a lot of that come back. But I think that came naturally to me as a nine to build that relationship and to understand where other people were coming from. And it was a real strength as a leader. I now know that, but I, I thought everybody just just led and thought that way. Yeah. And I think sometimes when I go into organizations and I talk about type nine or I talk about type two and I talk about the relational aspect, people are like, I'm kind of sad. I don't have something more important to contribute. And I'm like, if you've ever worked on a team without a two or a nine or like that person who plays that role of being the glue of making sure people are are there. Like recently I did a this analogy where I talked about like the gas, um, the the downshift and the clutch. 
and talked about how like twos and nines kind of smooth the transition between hitting the gas and like shifting gears. Um, and without, without that aspect of, of having that relational ability there, it's, it's awful. It's like shifting a car without a clutch. It's not, it's not good. Oh. Nobody likes it. Okay. I love that analogy because I had written, I wanted to get your opinion because what I had noticed as a nine leader, um, I called myself the pace setter. I was the pace setter and I had jotted that down. I'm like, I want to talk to Steph about that. And so what I found until I had the confidence around that pace setting, now I see it as a gift. So exactly what you say, it was the glue and being able to downshift. I don't know standard vehicles very well, downshift and clutch to be so tell me if I'm doing the wrong terminology to be able to do that um, in certain organizations at certain times, uh, the criticism would be we're moving too slow, pick up the pace, speed it up. And when I was early in my career, obviously you think, oh, I'm doing something wrong. It was only later in my career when I'm like, that's actually what I do right. So I'm going to go ahead and do the pace setting and do that. But I think uh for other nines out there, you might experience that because I heard that all the time uh, because I'd be saying, we, di- we can't move that quickly on this. It's going to have people impacts. So I want to gather a little bit more information. I'm not talking weeks here, I'm talking a couple of days to gather some extra information, talk to some people and understand the impact that it's going to have on our people. And when I got confident in that, again, it was transformational for teams. It was learning that discernment of when to pick up the pace and when it was okay to maybe move faster through that gathering of opinions and understand, is, is this just my nineness that really wants to make everybody happy and get real consensus? And when is the time to speed up? And so as I started calibrating and, and building my ability to discern those times, the more effective I was as a type nine, as a type nine leader, I think. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I do think it's really crucial. And I think, and, and I say that as a three, right? Like I say that as somebody who is, would rather just move faster. And I've just seen how detrimental that can be. And like, I've seen not only how people get left behind, but like how treating myself and my, you know, the people who are working with me as robots, like, and expecting a level of efficiency that is literally not possible from anyone, like how that expectation is making everything worse for everyone. Um, And how, like, sure, maybe the organization might get the results, but it's not sustainable. And so in the end, you're not moving at a pace that works. So I love that pace setting comment too. Um, yeah, I just think it's so, so crucial. And so I always, whenever people say that though, when they say, oh, I wish I had something more like concrete or tangible, I just laugh because I'm like, oh, it's just because you're so natural at it that you don't realize the value um, because it's, Oh, we, we just need it. Absolutely. And from what you just shared too, I think being, imagine like a conscious three leader and a conscious nine leader coming together in an organization, how great that can be with a conscious nine that's saying like, I am going to drive a little bit forward, uh, but I'm in great relationship with my colleague over there, that type nine. So you can speed the three can speed that nine along as appropriate. And the nine, when you have that good relationship with the three can say, actually, I think we need to, I need, I think we need to pull back a little bit. So I think again, it's this idea of um, being really self-aware leaders that you can leverage the gifts of one another and work so well together and leverage the strengths of all nine types when you're really aware of them and you've, and you've done that work as a team and as an individual. Yeah. And that actually is one of the reasons why, a lot of the time I love working with leaders 
who are willing to invest in the Enneagram, who are like maybe one of the more assertive types, because when that happens, I'm like, you get it. I know that you get it, you know, because it's like, I can tell like an eight who's just like move fast and break things like is not going to bring in something like the Enneagram or something like coaching. Um, But once they're willing to do that, it, it just changes everything for their team. Absolutely. I'm curious as you know, you've had, you've talked a little bit about these different things that you've had to overcome as a leader and a type nine. Um, How can other nines kind of approach those roadblocks too? Like what are the things that they need to recognize or understand about themselves? I think um, sometimes, as we know, nines can find it hard to, it's not just to know their opinion. So it's not that you're sitting there thinking, how do I feel about this? It's more that you're, you're sometimes, at least for me, I won't even be aware that I'm not formulating my own opinion. I won't even be aware that I'm taking in all the other opinions around the table and then forming kind of a mixed glob of an opinion. Again, that was me 10 or 15 years ago, just taking it in. So I think being really mindful, what do I think about this? And since then, and once I started working with the Enneagram, I really, I would do that exercise for myself every day to say, what do I think about this? And when I was really trying to hone that assertiveness piece and and insert myself in a room, I'm like, I'm very good at listening to others. What I need to work on is putting myself and my voice into the room more. So I would do, I would think about what do I have coming up in the day? Um, And really, what do I think about that? What is my, before I go in, I'm going to be open. I trust myself. My natural tendency is to be open to other opinions. So I know I don't need to be worried about going in and kind of bowling over other people. So why don't I go in with some kind of uh, pre-thought opinion on this? I don't recommend this for all types or for all people, but for a nine, if we're talking nines, this can be really helpful just to say, I'm going to go into this already with a sense of kind of what I think, who I am going into this. So that's really helpful. Number one, number two, uh, the conflict avoidance. So one of the big blind spots for me, uh, and what (laughs) the report really illuminated for me when I first got it, I didn't realize how many times people were surprised when I finally blew up about something or finally said I'd had enough. I went from zero to a hundred. So I was fine, 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 smile, 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 everything's fine until I wasn't. And then I was like, I'm done. I'm, I'm out of here or this is over. And just how ridiculous that was when I started noticing it in myself and was really conscious about it. I was quite embarrassed about that where I thought, wow, that's really passive aggressive. And uh, other nines might relate to that, may not. That for me was something, again, I really wanted to develop and grow in myself was an ability to sit in conflict. So I love eights. I love being around really healthy um, eights that have done some good growth and development work. Because again, that being my wing, a very, it used to be a very underdeveloped wing. Being able to hold relationship and be direct and assertive is something I've always really admired. And so I encourage, especially for nines at work and nines in leadership roles, really trying to um, get in touch with that, with that eight wing. And uh, what I was saying before, trying to really get uh, in touch with how you think about things and, and what you think about things as you prepare for your day. Yeah, I feel like that's really clear in in just like a really great example. And also, it really makes me think of this thing I think about with nines a lot, which is they like if you imagine um, like holding a really heavy weight, mm-hmm. like maybe you're doing, you know, 
bicep curls with a really heavy dumbbell and then you switch to a lighter one because you're like, oh, I'm no longer going to hold myself back from conflict. And then you like whack yourself in the face with it because it's so much lighter. And it's like when you're not used to doing something in a certain way or you're not used to having that inhibition of like avoiding conflict and then you go straight into the conflict really intensely and overdo it. I feel like I see that a lot with nine Mm -hmm. um, when they're on that growth path. And I'm curious if you have any little bits of encouragement for for nines who are experiencing that, because I think um, I've definitely seen nines say, oh my gosh, I'm just going to abandon this. Like, cause I can't, like, I can't keep doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but it's a process to learn how to do it really well. Yeah. So start with little things is, is where I started. Start with things that are not high risk or high impact. So when I was first starting to do this, you know, having a massive conversation about something that you're really sensitive about, or that has a really big impact on the organization or in your personal life, maybe in a personal relationship, maybe don't start with that. If you're on a growth path around conflict, start with, Hey, where are we going to go for dinner tonight? I'm really going to speak and say, I don't want to go to that place. So start with something small, uh, so that if you get hit in the head with the weight, at least it's, you end up going to, I don't know, some restaurant, you end up going for Italian instead of sushi or something like that, or the fight or the argument ends up being about something really light. Same in organizations, you know, don't, don't start. I mean, you could, but try not to start with the big project that's on deadline for next week. And now you're going to have, you're going to test out your new conflict skills in that situation. Start with something a little, a little lighter can be a great place to just step in and test it out. Yeah. And I loved earlier what you said about that concept of reactivity of like when we're going around, it's, it's almost like a walking live wire where it's like anything it touches, it's going to react to. Um, and I think that's true for any of us when we're in that really unconscious state. Um, we do respond from reactivity, even if we're not a super reactive type of person, like we react in our own way. Um, what else do we need to know about your book? Because I'm really excited to read it, like I said. Um, but I would love to hear if there are any stories that really stand out for you or that you're just like, oh, I think everyone needs to hear this part of the story um, or this aspect of it. Ooh, I think what I have noticed is really resonating with others and what, and part of the reason I wrote the book was that feeling I wanted to write it for those who identify as ambitious who identify as who identify with their work basically and I don't think there's anything wrong with that I, I I think it's lovely the way the world changes the way we bring wonderful new things into the world um is through our work and so when that goes sideways when you identify with work but it's going sideways the environment you're in is toxic um or it's completely out of alignment with your values when it starts wreaking havoc that's when the unfulfillment kicks in and so for anybody out there who feels like they've been climbing, they've been striving, they've been comparing themselves to others and they're waking up and they're just like, there's got to be a better way. I feel so unfulfilled. That's the big story in this book to say, I feel like I'm off path. I feel like I'm off center. I feel like I'm living out of alignment with what I'm here to do and who I'm meant to be. So big, big questions. (laughs) Uh, That to me is really at the heart of the book is finding your own. And again, like I said, it's a framework that is, I think, uh, universally applicable. I share my journey only to help illustrate those things. Um, 
because I think everyone can find fulfillment across every area of their life and they're going to find it in their own way. And fulfillment is going to be different for everyone. There could be people out there that are working 80 hour weeks as a Bay Street lawyer. Uh, that's a Toronto reference. Uh, I'm in Canada. Uh, it would be a, a big Manhattan law firm would be the equivalent in the U.S., they might be very satisfied as long as you're doing that consciously, as long as you have made a conscious life to say, I love doing this. This is in alignment with my values and I'm, I'm going home fulfilled every day. Great. So key emphasis here, this is not about scaling back and giving up on dreams or giving up on ambition, which sometimes people can read the title and misinterpret it. It's about, I said earlier, scaling back on what isn't working so that you can put in place the things that are and that will lead to your true fulfillment coming from internal, your internal voice rather than external voices. Yeah, because I'm also just thinking about people I know who maybe work 40 hours or even like 20 hours a week, you know, who are just not feeling fulfilled in the work that they're doing. Like, I could see how it would impact that person too, because it's not always about how much you're working. It's about how you feel about the work that you're doing. And like it or not, our work, whatever we're doing, takes up like well, maybe this is just like showing my threeness again, <laughs> but takes up like 90% of our thought life. Like it's difficult to not, it, well, especially if you're self-employed, I think, but um, it, it can be difficult to not always have that going in the back of your mind, at least during the work week. So I could imagine how, even if you're not quote unquote overworking by hours standards, you might be overdoing it in a different way or over applying yourself to something that's just not for you. Exactly. If it's out of alignment and unfulfilling, it's a sign. It's a sign that something, it's a sign that something can be calibrated um, for you in your life. Yeah. I'm really curious because you've, you've mentioned a couple of times like this, um, like hitting a wall basically, and like having that sense of burnout. And I'm curious if there were any signs. Oh yeah. Before that. <laughs> Lots of signs. Lots of signs. So um, I had a point, and this is a very minor spoiler in the book. You'll get to the point where I could only eat mashed potatoes. Like I wasn't tolerating any other food but mashed potatoes. So my body was clearly sending me messages to be like this. The way you're living, what you're doing is not working. There were probably signs before that that I, I just don't necessarily remember. Um, I have people reading the book now. And so even as they read my stories, they were probably like on page, you know, 20. Wow, Steph, I'm already worried about, uh, I'm already worried about the way you're working. You're like, at. wait, we've got a few more chapters. <laughs> <laughs> and so I think, again, that just shows what can happen with certain types and certain vices. Yeah. Um, we can just end up on that, on this path. And I don't think, and this is why, so obviously as a nine, my personal stories reflect a nine journey. I've worked through this content with each of the types. Uh, and it's just different vices, but the same, but leading to the same unfulfillment. So um, I do think while my journey as a nine was kind of ignoring signs and self-forgetting, and that really kept me hooked into that kind of unconscious productivity loop, for others, it's it's the same output. We're still chasing after things or living in a way that feels out of alignment, uh, but the vices are just different. Mm. Do you have any examples you want to share for a different type? Oh, let me think. Um, threes come to mind very obviously. Uh, twos are also very uh, similar to me. So I'm trying to run through my mind. Let's go with a seven. 
Let's go with seven. Mm -hmm. So for sevens, some of the seven clients that I see, um, again, that desire for new, that desire for novelty. I have some clients that are starting up four or five different businesses. And so for them, it's so exciting and thrilling to be thinking to themselves, yeah, I want to start this up. I want to get this going. I want to get this going. And again, then they get into comparison. How does this stack up to others who are doing the same thing? Um, oh, I need something new. Okay, now I'm kind of through the exciting part of this. Now I'm going to move on to that next thing. What ends up happening is, you know, in this particular case, you can end up with multiple companies doing multiple different things, stretched very, very thin. So again, I'll have a client like that showing up in a call, really unfulfilled. You know, I'm not seeing my family. I'm just not having that personal satisfaction. But I can't let everyone down because I've started up these other things. But again, what was driving that was very different. The drive there was, I want all the new things. I don't want to miss out on this opportunity. This is a brand new company. This is my chance to do this. Again, it was that kind of FOMO quality of it that was driving it, but led to the same outcomes that I've experienced as a nine. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I can imagine that as well. I And I think now that you're saying that, I'm like, yeah, I've heard stories like this from all nine types. It happened. Like yeah. we just... We just get so carried away with like what we believe we need to do and the strategies that we need to do to get there. Like, yeah, I could see that outworking for all nine types. Yeah. Um, okay. Now I'm really excited. Is there an audiobook? There will be. It's not out yet. Okay. Um, Again, I was trying to manage my own uh, productivity. So it was a very difficult, job. <laughs> yeah, it was very difficult for me to say, you know what, I'm going to release the, kin the, um, the Kindle version and the paperback version first, and then I'm going to go and record the audiobook. So it will be out in the new year, but it's not out yet, but it will be. Okay, great. I love it. Okay. One last question before we jump into the final two. Um, how is it going launching your book as a nine? Like it can feel very like promotion, like look at me, like look at this book. Like how is that going for you? So it's so funny because what got me going. So I have been putting myself out there. I have been obviously doing the promotion and the marketing, but it always comes back to relationship for me. So I, yeah. I truly believe that this book and this framework will help people. And so when I go to talk, and that's how I wrote it. I wrote it picturing specific people, specific clients. Um, I was feeling that connection with people as I was writing it. And and people have told me, they're like, oh, it feels like I'm sitting down for like a, a chat by a fire with you when I read the book. And that that's just my style. So I think I had that one-to-one -one relationship. It felt like I was writing to one person. So then promotion, it's the same way. I mean, in my business now, I don't think of it as sales or marketing or promotion. For me, it's always about connection. It's always about relationship. And so that makes it easier for me when I picture the people I'm talking to and who it's going to help it doesn't feel like promotion anymore. So it never feels scary. Yeah. yeah. Well, and it's, it's also something that sounds like so aligned in accordance with their values that it's like, it's easy to talk about it. Yeah. Um, Cause it's like, who wouldn't need this? You know, this, like we all I, need to I hear want, this. I want us all creating lives by our own design. I want us all listening to our inner voice rather than the external factors. Like I so want this conversation to happen for people and for them to be thinking about this for themselves. And it just makes me so happy to think of people creating a life by their own design and their own choosing and for their own values and fulfillment it makes me really excited. Yeah. 
Oh, I can't wait for everyone to read it. So where can we find it? It is on Amazon. So right now it's Amazon. It will be Barnes and Noble. And I don't think you have Chapters Indigo in the US, but for any Canadian folks listening, it'll be on Chapters Indigo, our equivalent of Barnes and Noble, but both within the next four weeks. But right now it's on amazon.ca, amazon.com and amazon.co.uk. Perfect. Going to put that in the show notes. And I have my final two questions. Nice. So... I mean, you can say your your book if you want to for this one, of course. Uh, but tell me about a book that has helped you, refreshed you, or shaped you in the last year. I'm not going to say my own book. Um, <laughs> uh, I'm going to have to cheat. I wasn't going to. I was going to try to answer your question and answer with one, but I'm going to cheat and say two of them: Atlas of the Heart, Brene Brown, and Fierce Self Compassion by Kristen Neff. So those two have been massively eye opening and transformational for me over the last year. What do you think it is about those, like, especially Atlas of the Heart, like, what is, what did that highlight for you? The specificity around emotion. So the number of times the word overwhelm, that's the one that sticks out most in my mind for me. The number of times people in my circles use the word overwhelm. And when Brene started to talk about this, the word you use impacts your body at a biological level. So using a word like overwhelm can over dramatize and have you end up going into a very um, strong stress response instead of saying, I actually feel stressed or I feel time crunched something else rather than using this word. So shoot the language influences how it gets expressed. That to me was mind blowing. Mm -hmm. So I, so I choose my emotions very studies. carefully now when I describe them. Oh yeah. yeah as a result. Yeah. Um, we have the same ish like background in terms of education. So I love thinking about like that psychology with the communication layer in there. Oh yeah. Fascinating. Good combo. Um, okay. And finally, what is a piece of advice that has really stuck with you? So I believe that I think it's Maya Angelou and this always comes to mind for me. People will forget what you said, but they'll never forget how you made them feel. That is something that I think about almost every single day. And I do watch what I say, so I'm not running about and saying anything. But I really am very mindful always about, or I try to be, about the impact I'm having on other people. Um, and how have I left them feeling? So even if I feel rushed and I have to deliver this message to someone, how can I deliver this in a way that honors that other person and leaves them feeling mm -hmm. respected and seen so that has always, when I first read that by the wonderful Maya Angelou, it has stood with me. It has stuck with me ever since. Yeah, that's such good advice. And I think I love the simplicity of it too, because it's like, you don't have to climb mountains to like make a big impact. Like yeah. it's just how you make people feel yeah. in the little moments. Just be kind. Yeah. And it doesn't mean you're going soft or you can't deliver a tough message or you can't disagree on something, but you're talking to another human. How are you going to leave them feeling at the end of the conversation? Yeah. Such a good reminder. Mm. Um, okay. I think that's all the questions I have. I'm so glad we were able to do this. Um, so excited about your book coming out. So exciting. Um, and yeah, I hope that everyone gets to listen, gets to read it, everything. Mm -hmm. Thanks, Steph. This was great. I, I feel like we could talk for another hour. Yeah. Thank mm -hmm. you. 
Thanks so much for listening to Enneagram IRL. If you loved the show, be sure to subscribe and leave us a rating and review. This is the easiest way to make sure new people find the show. And it's so helpful for a new podcast like this one. If you want to stay connected, sign up for my email list in the show notes or message me on Instagram at nine types co to tell me your one big takeaway from today's show. I'd love to hear from you. I know there are a million podcasts you could have been listening to, and I feel so grateful that you chose to spend this time with me. Can't wait to meet you right back here for another episode of Enneagram IRL very soon. The Enneagram in Real Life podcast is a production of Nine Types Co. LLC. It's created and produced by Stephanie Baron Hall with editing support from Brandon Hall and additional support from Crits Collaborations. Thanks to Dr. Dreamchip for our amazing theme song, and you can also check out all of their music on Spotify.